Hello and welcome to the first episode of the Talk Show Talk Show podcast and I'm your host George Grimwood and this podcast as you may have gathered already is all about talk shows all aspects from hosts to guests to audiences from monologues to sketches to interviews and of course from the United States to the UK and beyond. Now straight off at the bat I am not an expert I know a fair bit about certain areas than I do of others but I want to learn more about this world in which people converse and laugh and cry and, most importantly, communicate, all for the sake of late-night entertainment. Each week, with a guest, we'll be focusing on particular aspects of the world of the talk show, whether it be focusing on a particular episode of a particular show, it could be a trip down memory lane to that of, say, Early Tonight Show, Ireland's The Late Late Show, the UK's Parkinson, maybe even just a very obscure show that didn't cut the mustard, maybe only lasted one episode or indeed one season, or indeed one series, depending which country you're in. But either way, one way or the other, we're going to learn as much as we can and discuss as much as we can in the world of the talk show. Some conversations on the show will be less formal than others, depending on the guest and indeed the subject matter. In this instance, our very first guest of our very first show is none other than Mooncat, a.k.a. Gary Roger, the host of the Sitcom Club podcast, and, like the talk show, talk show is part of the forthcoming Podnose Network. In this episode, we take a look at the previous attempts to bring across the American late-night talk show over to the UK. In this case, Johnny Carson and subsequently David Letterman. We also discuss the forthcoming transition from David Letterman to Stephen Colbert as the host of The Late Show. And so, without further ado, here's how it went. So here we are in the UK where the talk show is the chat show. And although, of course, it is easier for us to flick over to terrestrial or indeed sky as it is over here and generally come across repeats more so than new additions to the chat show genre, we discover the likes of British television shows, British chat shows, uh, repeats more often than not recent shows, uh, the likes of Michael McIntyre, the occasional Parkinson, and Graham Norton, of course, and Jonathan Ross. But ultimately, I'm always drawn more to the American talk show. Carson, Letterman, Leno, as it is now, Fallon, Stephen Colbert, and, of course, John Stewart. And, and of course, Craig Ferguson. The list is endless. It just goes on and on and on. And most of it isn't actually repeated over here at the moment, which is a shame. But I am aware, Gary, that... There is a history of trying to bring U.S. talk shows over to the U.K. Yeah, and in preparation for our chat today, I actually did some bits and pieces. I did some research online earlier on just to establish, because you quite often see on forums and what have you, you say people say, oh, I remember seeing David Letman back in the day on Channel 4. Or, yeah, I used to watch them all the time. Or, I remember when they showed Carson or whatever it may be. But the actual details, the specifics are quite interesting. And... I've got some information noted in front of me which I will elaborate on. And I'm by no means an expert on this topic at all, as you'll soon soon discover. So I was going to say, dear listeners, if I have omitted any details, if I've got any details wrong, anything like that, please do tweet George at the talk show Twitter and let us know what we've got wrong. And then we can add to it, and we can probably put it on as a blog post, ultimately. It'd be nice, actually, to get a little definitive history of how the US talk shows have been broadcast in the UK, maybe on the website or something like that. But anyway, the first thing I noticed was, in terms of The Tonight Show, 
and by that I mean Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. The airings of that in the UK were pretty few and far between. The only time that I can find when The Tonight Show actually aired in the UK, apart from occasional clips and what have you in documentaries or anything else, was for a six month or so period in the autumn and winter of 1981-82. Now, I've got some bits and pieces in front of me about this because this is something that I've been aware of for a while. I'd seen occasional listings in the old TV times and there's trailers and what have you kicking about on YouTube for this. But the actual details of it are quite interesting. Now, I sent you something the other day, George. I sent you a clipping from the Times which talked about an attempt uh, an attempt at a pilot sort of viewer feedback forum discussion show uh, from London Weekend, which actually brought up this topic and it appeared that the audience in the studio, they were 80-20 against the Tonight Show in terms of just not really enjoying it, not finding it particularly entertaining. Now, I've got in front of me here some notes from a review by Brian Appleyard in the Weekly Catholic newspaper, The Tablet, from the 10th of October 1981. And he's written here, We are proud to present, said the announcer, introducing Johnny Carson's Tonight Show, worth £2.5 million a year. With much publicity, ITV has bought in a series of Carson's shows, being careful to play on the strong news line that he was their answer to Parkinson, who started a new series earlier the same evening on BBC One. In reality, since the shows were not broadcast at the same time, the notion of competition was purely an angle for the popular press. Carson is, and he then talks a little bit about how Parkinson, in his eyes, is effectively sort of like a straight man to his interviewee in in that particular instance on that particular evening, it was David Niven. But Carson is indisputably the star of his show. Guests are successful insofar as they submit to this fact. He controls the timing and guests may never appear on the programme if he decides an earlier one is performing too well to interrupt. ITV has ideas that this formula will become a cult in this country. It is wrong. It has bought American shows which will only make mild concessions to the fact that they are now shown over here, so the references misfire for British audiences and the jokes fall lamentably below the prevailing standard of British comedy. As mildly subversive anarchy, it is hopelessly mild. Now, obviously that's just one guy's opinion on the show. I have to say, though, that from the bits and pieces that I was finding in the newspaper archives, it does appear that this was a view that was shared by others. I mean, for example, in the listings in The Guardian, in the second week, it actually suggests that the first week wasn't too much of a big hit and perhaps was too, I suppose you would say, too uh, US-centric. But of course, then what would you expect it to be? As far as the actual details are concerned, you might notice there in that review, for example, that even though the title of the show was The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, it was actually billed by ITV as Johnny Carson's Tonight Show. And I suspect that the reason for that is that even though The Tonight Show itself hadn't been shown in the UK, Johnny Carson, of course, he'd been seen in the UK He'd been a guest on things like Ronan Martin's Laughing, which had been shown on BBC Two. And of course, at this time, he was the ever-present host of the Oscar ceremony every year. So they have, in their building, they've decided to lead with Johnny Carson rather than it being this great, grand American institution called The Tonight Show. Now, just to clarify, um, when you say the second week of this 1981 
appearance. Yeah. What, uh, what kind of month was this, just to clarify? Because I've got in front of me the guests of each show, of that Tonight Show era. Yeah. Now, let me explain what was going on here, because, first of all, there is... It sounds like a, just a small piece of incorrect terminology, but it's actually crucially important. It wasn't ITV, per se, that bought and aired The Tonight Show. It was London Weekend Television. And one other contractor, Anglia, in the east of England also broadcast the shows, at least to begin with. Now, that is important in as much as LWT thought that their audience in the cosmopolitan city of London would appreciate the mix of guests on the show and perhaps would not be as, I suppose you could say, parochial in their outlook as some parts of the UK would be to having this American comedian telling gags about Jimmy Carter and Ronnie Reagan and so on. It's even referred to in another instance in the Guardian listings as the programme was intended to appeal to a cosmopolitan audience, or so it says here. Now that implies that that was actually written out in the press release from LWT to the press, as if they're trying to put the idea in people's minds. So the majority of people in the UK never saw The Tonight Show. It was only people in London who saw it for that sort of six-month period, and like I say, people in the east of England got to see it for the first few months and was then dropped by Anglia at the end of 1981. But the way that they entered the market, so to speak, was that they began with the most recent anniversary show, and that was sort of intended. That was a sort of what you might call a ready-made compilation. So that was a way of breaking in the UK audience gently, and you make sure then you've got all your top names on the show at once. You're sort of dazzled by this cavalcade of stars, and then the following week, which would have been on the 10th of October, 1981, they were then showing one episode of I think. Johnny Carson was recording four shows out of the five weeknights at that time, and they selected one show each week for broadcast on the Saturday night. Again, the Guardian listing says simply, see how much you can understand this week, as if to suggest that perhaps not quite enough care was taken over that anniversary special to cut out particularly local references. And by local, I mean local to the whole of the United States. But still, you know what it's like. You watch a lot of these shows. I watch a lot of American politics, and so when they're doing gags about, for example, when Letterman was doing the gags about Anthony Weiner a few months back, I appreciated them, but I could understand that most people in the UK wouldn't have a clue who Anthony Weiner was. And also, prior to that as well, in the late part of September 1981 and the early part of October 1981, you have a bevy of guest hosts as well. You've, you have the last three episodes of September September hosted by Joan Rivers and then David Steinberg for October the 1st, David Letterman for October the 2nd. But then looking at the run of guests in October 81, there wasn't a huge amount of UK-friendly guests as such. I mean, certain, certainly familiar uh, in many respects to, uh, in terms of cinema, cinema names and so forth. But I mean, you have the likes of, for example, uh, Maureen Stapleton, Elliot Gould, Martin Mull, who uh, hopefully you and I will be discussing one day down the line in relation to Fernwood tonight and America tonight. Uh, James Woods, Candice Bergman, Doug Henning, David Brenner, Robin Williams. Robin Williams would have stood out, I suppose, in regards to uh, more Mindy, which I would have gathered would have been repeated at that point or would have aired. He was actually, yes, in the newspaper listings, he was actually billed as Robin Williams from Morgan Mindy. So you've got a You've got a lead in there. You've got a, an in with your audience. The only name actually throughout the entire run that I recognised as a name which looked as if it had been sort of specially selected, as in here's an obvious pick, was Dudley Moore. 
But otherwise, yeah, as you say, you're looking for big names, but there weren't a great deal of British performers on those shows. And I don't know, to be honest, that that was necessarily something that ITV or London Weekend would have been expecting, but I don't know that perhaps they would have realised just how the conversations themselves could sometimes sort of turn into something which is... I'm struggling to find exactly the right word for this, but... No, I don't mean like an in-joke, for example. I just mean that if you've got an American host with American guests on an American network show, then there's going to be points at which people then lapse into points of reference and other bits of dialogue and so on, which everybody there is going to get, but people outside the US may not. And I think that the approach that they would have taken would be if Johnny Carson makes a gag about some senator from Illinois or whatever the hell it is, if it's some business that's been on the national news that week, obviously that can get cut. I mean, that's 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 simple. You can get a cutaway shot of Ed McMahon or Doc or the audience, whoever, and then it's gone. No problem. But if he then started going into some little bit of whimsy, some flight of fancy with Robin Williams about the same senator then how do you start chopping all of that out without actually losing a huge chunk of the interview itself? Although I would say that perhaps that's that's also an entirely different aspect that one should explore further down the line is, of course, host styles. I mean, there are certain hosts who uh, endeavour to include any political references into their monologues or, or directed to the audience as opposed to with their, with their guests, unless, of course, the guest is politically inclined. I mean, a recent example that springs to mind, of course, is Letterman with Bill O'Reilly and him basically calling Bill O'Reilly out on on his beliefs. But not to deviate entirely, because we're, we're, we're in 1981 at present, and I'm looking at that list. I'd, I'd love to have been in 1981 watching all of those guests involved. But what would you say in regards to the, the modern age when you have the internet, when you have... You could have an AOL account, for example, and it'll provide to you the sort of top four or five Huffington Post links, and it'll take you through. I mean, in light of essentially the media enabling a much broader spectrum to its audience internationally uh, in regards to, as it happens, news... In in all aspects as well, uh, in politically, entertainment, sports, and everything in between, would you say that it would be more accessible for audiences now? I mean, essentially, is there any excuse really why we shouldn't have more talk shows broadcast over here, especially when we have such a vast number of channels now on on Sky, on cable? There's, I mean, when they're spreading it, for want of a better description, severely thin. When you have channels devoted to very specific niche markets, is there really an excuse not to have, if not even brand new episodes of the Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon, or or, or even Late Show with David Letterman, or Late Late Show? Craig Ferguson, which, once again, we'll talk about at some point further down the line, but is there essentially any excuse why we shouldn't be having these new shows sent over in in a more, essentially be more accessible to a UK audience now that, ultimately, there's no real excuse not to get the references? I'm going to argue that by and large things haven't really changed. The information is easier to get hold of, for example. Because, of course, it's on the internet, it's, everything's there. So if you're on Twitter, for example, if you're on Facebook, then, of course, you get the top stories from places like TMZ, for example. You get that kind of thing just in front of you without having to go looking for it. But if you scratch the surface, then the amount of material which is actually very specifically American in terms of the mainstream media is actually relatively small. 
So for example, on the Sky Guide, you have Fox News as the only wholly US outlet in terms of the news bracket, whereas CNN is the international edition of CNN, which is far, far less US-centric. As far as sports concerned, you have channels like ESPN, which show a lot of American sport, but again, they're very, very niche. They're, they're aiming at a relatively small area of the population. To give you an example, George, a few years ago, it was not too long ago, I think it's only about maybe things about three or four years ago, the Daily Mirror updated their website. They gave it an overhaul. And they agreed a contract with a third party to provide them with sports news on the website in, in video form, because of course that was becoming the big thing then. And it became apparent from day one that they hadn't really thought this through in terms of the content because all the content was American. It was all NFL, NHL, NBA, stuff like this. Now, if we got to the point where references to those kind of things in the late night shows were going to be easier to grasp by the UK audience, I suspect that the reaction to something like that would have been well, okay, this is all very interesting, but can we have some football as well? You know, Can we have some cricket and what have you? Instead, the reaction was this is a monumental balls up you've got in your hands here. You might as well have given us the, the sports news in Chinese because this stuff doesn't mean anything to us. And I'm, I'm also I'm paraphrasing and I'm generalising, but in terms of the 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 wider response from people, it was you know what's all this you've given us here? And I think that I don't know that we are necessarily the best two people to really analyse this because you've got very very good knowledge of current American TV shows, and you you know you get them from like different sources. You listen to American shows and so on. I listen to a lot of American news and politics and listen to podcasts and I watch the 24-hour news stations and like MSNBC and CNN and Fox and so on. So if I hear then a gag that Leno comes out with or Letterman or whoever and, and, and perhaps it will throw me, then I'll think, oh, well, maybe that's something that's, you know, just something that's passed me by, whereas that's going to be the exception rather than the rule. And I just, I don't think, I, I mean... Put it this way, I don't think that most people in the UK knew anything of Anthony Weiner when that whole business was going on. I don't think that most people know who Rob Ford is right now, the, you know, the mayor of Toronto with the problems he's having. And I suspect that in large areas of the population, you know, half the people who are involved in, in British politics and so on aren't known. Either. I mean, we can talk in a future episode, we can talk about Spit and Image and the problems that they had when politicians became less recognisable, for example. Well, before before I counteract, I would say that in regards to our experiences, I would like to think that you and I are of the same ilk, of the same audience, in that the type of audience that may watch, for example, an American show, an American talk show, or maybe they're just watching a sitcom in general, or perhaps a, a drama. And there's a, maybe a reference that is, if it's not too subtle, it doesn't just fall straight under the radar, but if it's a reference to something or someone uh, in the media then, or perhaps a character, or perhaps a local colloquialism or, or a brand product that you don't get in the UK, I'd like to think that you and I are part of the same audience where we wouldn't reject the thing of, oh, well, I don't know what that is. We would probably, I'd like to think that you and I are probably if we were into that show, if we were watching it because we enjoyed the show, I'd make use of, the, of this 
of, of this modern age. And I would, I would, I would Google Mountain Dew, for example. Oh, I don't know what Mountain Dew is, of course, but uh, I think that audience does exist. I'm not saying that that things haven't necessarily changed in that respect, but I would say that when you have such a broad scope of channels that are adhering to a number of interests and disinterests as well. Uh, for example, a channel that we have over here, as you know, in, in the UK is Challenge TV. And they, they repeat a number of British, for the most part, British game shows from the last, say, 30, 40 years. And arguably, that's that's a niche market, but ultimately, questions are questions. People win prizes in any decade, in any era. They're winning prizes. It, it has an appeal. It has an audience and although that it ages and there's a sense of nostalgia to that, I think it, that same appeal, that same nostalgia applies to talk shows. And for me personally, I don't see any reason why that given the number of different channels that we have adhering to everyone's interests and everyone, every niche market in town, that we shouldn't have a talk show channel, for example. I mean, personally, I'd love to see that as a general mix of new talk shows, classic Tonight Show, not just Carson, but Steve Allen, Jack Parr. You have Dick Cavett in there. You have late night you have uh, with letterman from the 80s you have conan late night from the 90s merv griffins pat sajax even a chevy chase uh if you, if you, you know if, you, if you're adhering to all tastes but the thing is is that there would be a market of appeal i think people would tune into that it, in the same way that you might go oh well this is that this is an episode from 72 i want to check this out for whatever reason I, I'm just saying is that I'm not necessarily disagreeing that that nothing's changed, uh, that people don't necessarily seek out the references and seek out what the jokes necessarily mean or what the references necessarily mean. But I would say that in light of the broadness of the channels that we have now, there really is no reason why we shouldn't be getting repeats of, if if not new shows, there's no reason why we shouldn't at least be getting repeats of Carson and, and so on uh, on, on, on UK television. Well, yeah, I take your point that it does appear strange at first glance that there doesn't appear to be a place for those shows on the, what is it, like 300, 400 channels that you've got on Sky or on your FreeSat receiver or Virgin Media or whatever it may be. I suspect that there may be an issue in as much as you've got channels such as like the very, very niche channels, the ones that put out like DIY SOS and all those kind of shows that turn up on BBC One during the day, then suddenly turn up at night on other channels like that and so on. That kind of thing is relatively cheap programming. Whereas I do wonder if you were proposing to start up a TV channel, and then you went along to CBS and NBC and so on, and you said to them, look, I'd like to air all these clips from your shows, and you went to the, the Carson estate, and you said, no, I want to show like tonight shows and so on. I suspect that even though you're an international buyer, I suspect that those shows would still come at a premium, at a price. And I think then that when you're sort of umming and eyeing and you've got a fairly limited budget... And you're sort of thinking how to sort of maximize revenue and get the most viewers and so on, then you might just settle for perhaps the same batch of British shows that tend to sort of come back again and again. I think there are there are economic reasons why the same shows turn up on satellite again and again. I mean, why does gold these days 
you're never more than a few hours away from Only Fools and Horses on gold, whereas back in the early days when it launched, they were much more eclectic, much more interesting schedules, and as much as you'd see bits and pieces from BBC and Thames that you might have not seen since it went out in the first place, like sort of 20 years previously. But over time, they've sort of chipped away at those bits, sort of pushed them to the edges of the, the schedule. And eventually you get your sort of your, your core shows. We know these shows get an audience. Occasionally we'll tinker, we'll try the odd thing here or there. But we know that we can expect an audience of this much for this show at this time. And yeah, a lot of stations... You know, no matter how small or how niche they appear to be, they're just not really in the market for too much in the way of experimentation. To to answer your point about the idea of if you see something in a show, and then would you be intrigued to then Google it and so on? I agree if you. I mean, that's something I've done myself. I've Googled references I've heard on Larry Sanders' show. I think that's probably the show more often than any other one that I've, I've done that with. Uh, I've also done it occasionally with things like Roseanne and Shears and so on. If I see, like, if, if they're making reference to like some like celebrity who's a big deal there and if somebody I've never heard of then I'll look them up just to get a little bit of context and so on I've got in front of me here some details about the UK airings of David Letterman's show and I'm going to go through these rapidly because I think that you'll see a pattern emerge when I go through these and then we're going to bring this right up to the present day and I'm sort of going to use this as my argument to say even now uh, I don't see too many stations taking a punt on putting on you know any one of the late night shows in a decent regular slot. There is one exception to that rule which we'll come to in a minute which is NBC. But for example, like I say dear listener, if I've got any omissions in this list, if I've missed anything out, please tweet us and set us straight and we can correct it on the website. The first instance I found of Channel 4 actually showing late night with David Letterman, as it was then, was on New Year's Eve 1986. And in the autumn of 87, and again the autumn of 1989, they aired a batch of episodes. The first time they were sort of prior to midnight, sort of half past 11, quarter to 12, thereabouts, the autumn of 89, much, much later around about 1am, 2am, thereabouts. Fast forward a few years, Sky One made a big deal about acquiring David Letterman's show. Obviously, it was by then CBS. And they said, we're going to air it, what would have been 18, 19 hours after it's gone out in the US. So it was going to be the previous day's show. That began at 11pm. In May of 1995, when Letterman came to the UK, of course, he had that week where he was doing the shows from London. They were going out on Sky. The week after that, they went out on BBC Two in a similar slot. That was actually the peak in terms of his exposure in the UK because by the summer of that year, Sky had already sort of moved it to midnight in the schedules. The following year, they then shunted it to Sky 2. When Sky 2 was then closed, they put it back on Sky 1 again at midnight. Then they dropped it in 1998. It was picked up by Paramount Comedy Channel later on that year. It lasted for one year on there. ITV2 got it, spring of 2000. Again, they're airing at around about sort of 11.30 at night, thereabouts. By the time it finished, and it was on for five years, it was on for a good long while. By the time it finished on ITV2, it was actually airing at 1.20 in the morning with a repeat at 10 past 5. So, not really what you say central to the schedule. And then, finally, ITV4 launched. Again, it got sort of pride of place there. I remember they had repeats of Larry Sanders' show on there, and they had other shows like... Dream On and so on, that were sort of all around the Dave Lennon show at night. 
And October 2006, ITV4 dropped Letterman. Finally, there was a channel which nobody remembers called Diva TV, which launched in 2007 in the UK, and it was showing all manner of different sort of talk shows and you know shows like you know, sort of Montel Williams and shows like that, you know, the sort of discussion shows. And they had Letterman on. Originally, they were showing it every night. By the time they dropped it the year afterwards, they've reduced it to the weekends. So for the whole period of 1996 right through until 2008, you've got again and again this habit of the broadcasters snatching it, trying to make it a big deal. In other words, doing exactly what LWT did back in 1981, you know, giving Johnny Carson the, the title of the show, saying, you know, he's our guy, he's our Parkinson in effect. And each and every time, it's then sort of been pushed back later and later and later until eventually they lose interest. Now, where I'm going to bring this up to the present day is with The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. When More 4 launched, they used to have half an hour of additional news from ITN on the back of the Channel 4 news, and then after that, half past eight at night, they would have The Daily Show, and it would be the previous day's Daily Show, and on the off day, or whatever it may be, if you didn't have the new one, you'd have like, the global edition and so on. Now, eventually, More 4 dropped the Daily Show, and they said as much when they did so that, you know, it had its following, it had a cult following, it had a lot of devoted viewers, but there just weren't enough of them to sustain it. And now, when you look at More 4 schedules for that time in the evening, then you see what you might call more sort of mainstream Channel 4 material in that slot. For example, if I look right now, then where, where would it have been previously? Now you've got some of like Grand Designs, for example. The Daily Show now airs on Comedy Central in the UK, and when Comedy Central picked it up, it didn't even get a position on the main channel. It goes out on Comedy Central's secondary channel, Comedy Central Extra. It was going at half past 11 at night. It's now been moved back to midnight. And the only times where it gets anything earlier than that would be if he's got a huge name, and by that I mean basically the president on the show as his interviewee. Otherwise, you know, it's there, but again, it's sort of at the edges. And I think that everybody these days is capable of looking up the details of if John Stewart or Dave Lennon or whoever, if they're making jokes about Harry Reid or Mitch McConnell or John Boehner or whoever it may be, then we're all capable of looking up those names, looking up the Wikipedia page and straight away getting the SP on who they are and what they're doing and so on. But I suspect that the broadcasters don't really want people to have to do that. You know, they want them to be able to put on TV and if they are doing anything on the second screen, they want them to be tweeting about how much they're enjoying that program with their specific hashtag. But they don't want people having to sort of do research during a show because you know, I suspect most people, like you know, ourselves and pretty much everybody else, you're working all day, you get home, you're you've got the TV on, you want to sort of be entertained you don't want to feel like you're in a classroom so to speak i would say that there's still room for that audience but in regards to that i would also say that there aren't enough opportunities for that audience to really enjoy or indeed appreciate the u.s talk show culture and in relation to that i would say I would ask you, would, are there any other examples? I mean, The Daily Show is a rare example of having a fair enough run, I would say, in the, in the UK. Are there any other examples like that? 
Yeah, the one that springs to mind, and I mean, I would say that when we're talking about Letterman, and of course this is something which Letterman fans in particular have been frustrated with over the years, is this seemingly endless sort of having to trail all the different stations and and find that he's there, five minutes here, five minutes there, and so on. But of course, the two main ones, Sky 1 and ITV2, even though the time slot itself kept on changing, he was on there for the best part of of nine years combined. So it's not been entirely nomadic, this existence, but it's still frustrating for people just wanting to watch the show same time each and every night. The one show which, by and large, has not entirely, but by and large, it's been able to get past those kind of hurdles, and this is partly a sort of ownership thing, is The Tonight Show. And as it was the Tonight Show with Jay Leno and now Jimmy Fallon. And the reason for that is that in 1993, pan-European British-backed channel called Super Channel, which hadn't really been the success that its backers were hoping for. Or, or that its name implies. Well, exactly. It was then bought up by NBC and rebranded as the NBC Super Channel. And from that point on, they had the Tonight Show, Jay Leno, on each and every night, sometimes around about sort of 11 o'clock, half past 10, and this is something that was going out to the whole of Europe. So normally it would be a sort of cut down to about sort of half an hour or so version of the night before, and mid-1990s you had some ownership changes, it was sold on to different broadcasters in Germany and elsewhere, but out of all that upheaval then came CNBC Europe as we know it now is accessible on Sky and on Virgin Media. And the majority of the time, you will find The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon on at 11pm in the UK on CNBC Europe, in a sort of double bill of the NBC Nightly News, which is a live simulcast. Now, The Tonight Show is the day before. It is cut down to half an hour, so it's not always the most user-friendly of shows to follow. It can be a bit clunky at times. But nevertheless, in terms of your regular exposure to current US talk shows, that's, by and large, it's pretty much the only standard. It's the one that you can be fairly sure more often than not is going to be in that slot. Would you say that US daytime talk shows have a broader run in the UK? Yes, I think you're right there. I think that the reason for that is that those shows deal with what, I mean, I don't even know what terminology you would use, but they deal with, I suppose, social issues and with the kind of topics that you would see in the sort of women's weekly magazines like Chat and so on. So, for example, I'm looking at a US TV guide right now, and you've got things like the Steve Wilkos show and... Steve Harvey on NBC, you've got Jerry Springer, of course, is on Fox, that repeats. You've got shows like Judge Alex and The Test, which pretty much tells you. And over here, you've got Loose Women. Yeah, Loose Women and things like, over the years, you had Trisha and you had Vanessa Feltz, and of course, now you've got Jeremy Kyle. The thing is, with all of those shows, I mean, there are some which are more outrageous than others, and of course, Jerry Springer is the one that's always held up as being the most outrageous, but those shows 
don't tend to be talking about current affairs. The the name that I've omitted from that list there was Oprah, because sometimes she does discuss current affairs and she'll have topical subjects. And the same goes for Ellen as well in the US. But a lot of the material in those shows, it's just, you know, it's here's this person, they've got a dispute with this person, let's have them butt heads, the audience is going to cheer and boo like a pantomime. There you are. And of course those shows... Because they're not topical and because they're not dealing with current affairs, those shows can be repeated ad infinitum. I mean, those shows can can go on and on and on. So, yeah, I mean, Fox in the US these days shows episodes of Jerry Springer, which are 10 years old. And apart from, you know, perhaps occasionally seeing it in a 4-3 rather than a 69 format and SD instead of HD, then really it doesn't age because the actual subject matter, as loose as it is, is still something which is still accessible. Whereas... Yeah, if you were to put on, say, repeats of David Letterman shows today, then would you really keep in all of his monologues from 2003? Because you'd have gags in there about Dick Cheney and about Scooter Libby, and you'd have gags about Al Gore and what have you. Would that mean anything to very many people these days? I mean, in the US version of Turner Classic Movies has Johnny Carson interviews in between the films. But they are specially selected. They're not just full episodes of The Tonight Show. You know, he'll interview, say, Charlton Heston, and it'll be a nice little sort of ten-minute block. And it just fits in perfectly with the overall style of the channel and perhaps the age of the films that they're showing around and about it and so on. But I don't think any channel is really going to put on Johnny Carson doing... Watergate monologues. And I mean, I'm choosing that as a really high-profile example. If you were making a documentary about Watergate, you might choose one clip to illustrate it, but you wouldn't have just a run-of-the-mill monologue from any talk show host removed more than a few days because, of course, it wouldn't make any sense to anybody. Now, I should just clarify at this point that in relation to shows such as The Jerry Springer Show, Jeremy Kyle, Loose Women... Generally speaking, daytime shows such as that, daytime shows that can't really be defined heavily as the kind of talk shows that we intend to talk about, they will not be covered hugely in forthcoming shows. The only exception perhaps might be the Jerry Springer show in relation to the fact that Jerry Springer did come over to the UK and have his own talk show. But other than that, we're probably not going to endeavour to discuss those in a huge amount of depth. But I should also point out, of course, that in relation to talk shows of the US and chat shows of the UK, we will be covering all of those in depth and anything we can possible, every aspect. You know, for every Carson, there's a Parkinson, not to not to necessarily put them on the same level, just to emphasise that for listeners on both sides of the pond. But... From for every Carson Parkinson, for every Wogan a Dick Cavett, and anywhere in between, we we will we will cover everything and anything, episode for episode, show for show. We will we will be discussing every single aspect that we can. But uh, in regards to those daytime ones, not so much. Now to bring things to a close, Gary, I suppose we should really talk about the Colbert in the room, and that is to say Stephen Colbert, who it was very recently announced will be the successor to David Letterman in 2015. Now, are we going to clue in listeners to the fact that we have a small wager on this topic? I I think I think we can. Yes, I I am being positive and you're not so much. I no, whoa, no, 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 no. I'm not going to not going to I'm not going to accept that at all. That's a, that's a complete misrepresentation. I'm not in any way being negative, but I'm going by my gut instinct. I'm going what just what I feel and, and what I think is going to happen. I've basically bet you £5 that Stephen Colbert will not be the 
and I'm wording this very specifically, he will not be the 11.30 CBS host more than 18 months from the point at which he takes over from Letham. And I bet you five US dollars. <laughs> uh, hang on, let me think about the exchange rates. No, 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 definitely. I'm on, I'm on losing uh, side of that argument. So no, got to be five British pounds or five euro if you prefer. But as long as we establish now what the currency is. You see, and that's why I prefer, that's why I prefer <laughs> the US talk shows. But yes, no. Um, so essentially, we've we've established that five British pounds, a wager that you believe that uh, Stephen Colbert will not pass the eighteen-month limit. Do you want to explain your argument as to why you are in favour of the move first of all, and then I'll come in with my big killjoy bulldozer after that? Yeah, and I, I I should point out that I will be more or less putting across in so many ways the same argument to other guests along the way in future podcasts, if if need be. But essentially, I generally believe that, in summary, with the transition for David Letterman from late night to late show. It went from a, albeit far more subtle character than that, say, of Stephen Colbert's character in The Colbert Report, but ultimately Letterman of Late Night was a character. This is cemented in as early as 1979 when he produced a special for HBO called Looking for Fun, which was a, a superb parody of a travel log of Letterman traveling around Los Angeles, which, I, which myself and Jonathan Sloman will be covering in the next episode. Right through to certain specials that took place in late night history uh, which once again emphasized the element of Letterman as a character and then the transition to the late show where aspects of late night and those characteristics followed through and continued on and eventually dissipated and, and, and disappeared as the true Letterman came forward and ultimately we were left with the real Letterman and sadly I would say in some aspects of that did involve when there were aspects of Letterman's private life that were made public and Letterman had to come come forward and sort of put his case forward and and that was that and that's when sort of really was that I wouldn't say the beginning of the end but it was certainly a huge difference to to the Letterman of late night. Now, Stephen Colbert, on the other hand, obviously a far more emphasised, far more honed and direct character in the Colbert Report. And a lot of people that I know are not optimistic about the fact that Stephen Colbert will not be playing a character upon succeeding Letterman in 2015 as the host of Late Show. I, for one, based on the number of talents that come through, that shine through with Stephen Colbert as a character or not, that, you know, he can sing, he can dance, he can, he's a great improviser. And even when he's interviewing in character, sometimes those, the people that he interviews, the guests that he interviews aren't necessarily always in on the joke. And it's, it's quite apparent from the get go. So he hones it down and he, he, him, he himself shines through. And in that respect, I think CBS aren't fools. I think CBS know he was a character at the White House correspondence dinner, for example. He, they're, they're not false, and I genuinely believe that they've made a, a a good decision. I don't think that they've gone into it completely blindly, and I think they know that, that he's got something else to bring to the table other than what we may have seen in the last ten years or so as Stephen Colbert the character. And I think that whatever he brings, he'll bring it well. It's not like The Tonight Show, where it has a 60-year legacy. Late Show is, is Letterman, then Who?, and the who is Stephen Colbert in this case. And so it could be a completely different vibe. And personally, I don't think it's going to be an issue 
in regards to Stephen Colbert being anyone but himself. And I think it doesn't have that legacy to fall back on. And so perhaps maybe that's the risk. Maybe that's the fear. But I believe that Colbert will do just fine. Okay, well, my counter to that on a couple of fronts. One is, as you say, people in charge at CBS are no fools. And I agree. Neither are the board of Manchester United. Time and again, we've seen a situation where you've got a person in a specific position for, say, 15, 20, 25 years. It doesn't have to be in media or sport. It could be in business generally, whatever it may be. It could be in politics. And that person is just sort of entrenched in that role. Now, I think that Letterman's been at CBS, as you say, I mean, for as long as it's been a CBS talk show at half past 11 at night, it's been Letterman's slot. So 11.30 at night on CBS is Letterman. Whoever is taking this challenge will be aware, and I'm sure that Stephen Colbert will be, it's potentially a poisoned chalice. So many times we've seen situations where when the guy who's been at the top of the tree for years, maybe decades, leaves, someone else will come in immediately from day one. The comparisons are drawn between him and his predecessor, and quite often they'll be unflattering because how can anybody follow somebody who's been that successful, somebody who's that established in that role? So they've got to sort of fight that battle straight away. They've also got to ingratiate themselves with the audience. But yeah, they've got that sort of battle going on from day one. Now, it may well be, therefore, that Colbert, in this instance, is... The stopgap, I suppose what you might call the fall guy. He's the guy, because somebody's going to take over from Letterman. Somebody's going to do it. So you have someone come in, and he may be moderately successful, he may not. But as and when he then departs, the person who comes in after him is not being compared with the guy who was at the top of the tree all those years, in this case Letterman. He's being compared with his immediate predecessor. So whoever comes in after Colbert, whether it's 18 months, if I'm right, or where it's five years or ten years or whatever, is going to be compared to Colbert, not to Letterman. So I just, I, my, my gut instinct is that I think whoever took this slot on is just going to find this an exceptionally rough ride. And that's not necessarily any massive fault of theirs. I mean, I'm, I'm not, I mean, I'll, let me be blunt about it. I'm not a fan of Colbert. I'm not a fan of his show. But that's irrespective. It's, you know, it's of, it's of no importance. I can't judge his comedic abilities in terms of being able to carry an 11.30 US talk show. Many, many more people who are better qualified to do that than I am. I'm just looking at it as an observer, but I'm thinking that... With regard to the the argument you put forward about the development of Letterman on the HBO shows and then Late Night with Letterman and so on, and then leading into CBS, all of that goes into his ultimate persona on the CBS show. It all builds up and builds up, and he's able to then sort of bring a sort of more, what you might call a more mainstream, a more sort of slightly more accessible version of his late night persona to CBS. Whereas Colbert cannot go in, as we've established, he's not going to go in and be Colbert from the Colbert Report. He's going to have to be, well, himself or a new version of himself. He can't be the satirical version of Bill O'Reilly on CBS. So, in a way, okay, yeah, there's there's plenty of bits and pieces and bits of business and so on that he's going to bring to the table from what he's been doing on The Colbert Report and before that on The Daily Show. But it still feels like he's going to have to do an about turn in many ways and sort of reinvent himself on the first night. So not only has he got to ingratiate himself with Letterman's audience and win over the critics... 
like any other person who was coming in, but also he's got to create a new persona for himself from the first night. And I think perhaps that's just too many battles to fight you know, on one front. Well, I think I think history has indicated that most hosts have not had a, a good run within the first few months. It's very rare. I mean, I'd say Fallon, Jimmy Fallon's probably a huge exception uh, in regards to ratings and so forth in 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 recent months when since he took over tonight's show which incidentally as it turns out was one of the reasons from what i can gather why lesserman felt inclined to consider retirement in the first place but bad reviews in, in the first month or two they won't just drop it and go oh well we you know forget it we're we're done for they'll they'll turn it around and they'll make it they'll hone it and they'll make it work and and you may get the audience re-reacting, oh, actually, we were wrong. Well, that's why I was very specific in the bet that I made with you, and I said, I don't think that Colbert will be the 11.30 weeknight host on CBS after 18 months. What I think will happen, if things play out the way that I sort of expect them to, at some point they're going to say, well, we've actually decided, we think that Colbert's type of humour and, 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 and you know his audience and so on, we think it'll work better in this slot, and they'll try something else with him and give him like a weekend. So I mean, whatever it is, it's going to be obviously it's going to be a demotion from that slot, from Letterman's slot. But they'll try and manage the situation well. They'll try and do damage limitation and say, "Oh, we're going to give him these specials or this late night shorts, or we're going to do something with our cable offshoots or whatever it may be." But there's another reason also that I think that Colbert is in for a tough time, and again, it's a situation. I suppose you would say entirely of his own making because of his existing persona. His persona is basically you know, a stereotypical version of your right-wing talk show host, and principally Bill O'Reilly, of course, but there's also elements of different people in there as well in his show. Now, when I said about how he has to get himself over with the population from day one, with the CBS audience, that's a pretty broad spectrum of people. I mean, you're talking about you know, CBS audiences all 50 states. You're not talking about the niche audience that he's got right now on Comedy Central. The people who will be, you know, obviously he's got a sort of a cult following just now. The kind of people who will be watching the Colbert Report every night are probably also devotees of things like perhaps NPR and MSNBC and the Huffington Post and Daily Coast and things like that. Whereas he's now going to speak to the whole of America in the same way that Johnny Carson could speak to the whole of America as the host of the Oscars, for example. Now, I'm not entirely sure how well he's going to be able to do that from day one and in the weeks and months that follow, because I suppose you see he is such a partisan figure. Now, one thing that will definitely happen, I mean, this is not even worth me staking five for one, because categorically it's going to happen, it's happening right now, is that Colbert's appointment will be, and is already being attacked by a number of people that I suppose you could say Colbert satirises. People like Bill O'Reilly and also Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity and so on. And their argument, I mean, okay, they've got they've got different arguments, but they're, the one sort of thread that's going through their line of attack is that CBS is making a sort of political statement by appointing somebody who's got, you know, a sort of a partisan outlook on things, at least in his current persona. And, I mean, there's no beating about the bush about it. I mean, Colbert himself is a registered 
Democrat. I mean, he's open about that. So it's not as if he can just say, oh, that's my, my you know, persona. My, my politics are entirely different. But he's going to then face that kind of scrutiny. Whereas, for example, O'Reilly actually gets on extremely well with John Stewart, even though John Stewart is constantly taking the piss out of O'Reilly and Fox News in general, and all the people, all the people that you would say were allies of O'Reilly on that side of the political fence, and yet, yeah, the two of them getting very well. They had that wonderful little debate uh, a couple of years back, and they've appeared in each other's shows and what have you. And I suspect that from O'Reilly's point of view, I think that he respects the fact that he's talking to John Stewart and that there's no difference, whereas. Stephen Colbert right now, even though he shares the same name, he's a character. And I'm not entirely sure how well that will sort of go over. I mean, of course, people like Rush Limbaugh and John Hanty and so on and O'Reilly. Of course they're not going to be appreciative of the fact that this guy is taking the piss out of him every night. And, I mean, Limbaugh actually made that exact point just the other week and said, people are saying that I'm supposed to be the, the bigger man and congratulate him on his appointment. Why should I? Why should I, when this guy's making gags about me and attacking me, what the hell should I put that to one side and, and extend my hand and congratulate him? So you're going to have that kind of thing going on as well. Now, a lot of that is going to be, some of that is going to be sort of dog whistle sort of politics. You know, they're going to be talking to their existing viewers and listeners when they criticise Colbert's appointment. And you could say that you know, it's not going to have a massive effect on the mainstream audience. At the same time, as I understand it, Colbert's going to be appointed as the host around about sort of the, the autumn of 2015. Now, I mean, as we've talked about off-air, American election campaigns pretty much never end and never start either. They just go on and on and on. But principally from autumn of this year, when you've had the midterm elections, you're then actually in the election cycle. Then you're going through the, the primaries, you're going through the debates between the... Of course, it's going to be more heated this time because, of course, you're going to have that selection process going on on both sides, whereas last time you had Obama was the uh, incumbent and was going to be challenged. So you're going to have all that going on. By the time Colbert gets there in autumn of 2015, that's going to be at its peak, that kind of activity. You're going to have one year to go before that election. So your 11.30 a night host is going to be expected to be making political gags in his monologue each and every night. Again, I'm wondering how that's going to work with Colbert, given what he's doing right now and given his background. It was perhaps easier for people such as Jay Leno, because Jay Leno, being a stand-up comic, he could do gags about anyone and everyone. And it's it's all... I mean, he, I think Leno actually had a rep right up until the point at which he left The Tonight Show. He had a reputation for being pretty even-handed when it came to political gags and when it came to the political guests that he would have on the show and so on. Now, on one hand, if Colbert goes out there on his first night and the first week, the first month, and he's doing gags about the Republican nominee, then you're going to get people on the right saying, there you are, it's exactly what I told you so, he's doing his usual shtick, partisan guy, so and so on, and he's not going to carry the whole of America, he's, he's, he's cutting off 50% of his audience. If he goes out there and he's making gags about the Democratic nominee, or the front runners, then is he potentially going to piss off his own existing cult following? Are people then going to be going on things like the Daily Coast and Media Matters and so on, saying, oh, damn it, Colbert sold out. Here he was on CBS last night and he's having a go at Hillary Clinton and so on. He wouldn't have been doing that on the, the Daily Show. So, well, I, th I think I think it's only time will tell, really. I mean, that's the trouble is that we, we just don't know. One last thing I would say about Colbert, and this is maybe unfair because it is an isolated incident, but it's just something that 
it sort of reinforced my existing opinion about him was this business a few weeks back with the offensive tweet that was sent out from his account. The one that had an Asian stereotype as the punchline of a gag. There's a couple of ways that he could have handled that himself because obviously it wasn't him that was behind the keyboard. It was the official blue tick Stephen Colbert as seen on TV's Colbert Report Twitter feed that sent out that tweet and then got a very, very harsh backlash from members of the Asian community and others. Like I said, there's a couple of ways that he could handle that. He could have just stepped forward and said, hands up, yep, you're right, that was out of order. Yeah, okay, I know I'm sort of, you know, it's supposed to be satirical and so on, but at the same time, you know, there's a place for satire and then sometimes it can overstep the mark and it can just go into using lazy stereotypes as its humour and so on. So, yeah, you're absolutely spot on, bang to rights. Yeah, apologies. He could have done that. What he did instead was to sort of rush out and, and almost like pull off an invisible mask and say, no, 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 that wasn't me. That was Stephen Colbert. I seen on TV's Colbert report who sent that and it wasn't me and it wasn't me who typed it out because it was whoever the hell was running the Twitter feed and it's got nothing to do with me. It's some writer somewhere else. So don't blame me because, you know, I'm Mr. Nice Guy. And it didn't leave me with a very good impression of him. To throw, perhaps it was I mean, one of his writing staff, I presume, who who sort of wrote that and what have you, and the poor sod, the intern who was you know on Twitter duty that night and then putting the stuff out, to throw them under the bus like that, I don't really think that was a very decent way to behave. That wasn't a very manly way to behave. I think that he could have just done the decent thing and said, it's got my name on it, it's got my face on it, therefore there's tacit approval in this. And yeah, okay, if there's bits and pieces going on in the background where people are tweeting stuff and he's not reviewing it, which again, he should be because again, it's got his name and face on it. But if that's what's been going on, you can take care of that behind the scenes. You can take care of that out with the public view. But to actually just throw other people under the bus, I didn't get a very good impression of him from that. Well, I don't think I disagree with you. I think it is unusual that amidst all this, the decision then came out. It's sort of not, there's not a huge gap between this sort of controversy and then this announcement, which probably, as you say, said before, is, is a bit of a poison chalice, I suppose. So I think I'm optimistic for, for what it may become. But then again, as you say, we, you know, we haven't, we haven't experienced the character as such. We haven't experienced the character outside of its comfort zone. And I suppose by definition, the character outside of its comfort zone is the real person. So I'm going to remain optimistic. I think it's one of those things where we just have to wait and see, really. And there's been so many changes recently and so many forthcoming changes now with not just Colbert taking over from Letterman, but of course, Craig Ferguson stepping down. Who's going to take over for the Late Late Show as well? And of course, who's going to take over from Colbert on Comedy Central? There's a lot of questions. So I'm I'm quite excited. I'm quite thrilled to be in the middle of this talk show era. I think you've picked a good time to launch the cast. I think that this is before, just like a couple of months ago, you know, you, you would have still been in that area where it's speculation. It's like, you know, okay, when is Leno going to retire? Is Letterman going to go first? Is he going to wait for Leno to retire? So and so on. Now we know, we've got all that out of the, out of the way, that we know what's happening. So, yeah. Now it's, now it's good fun actually just letting the speculation now begin as to how the people that we now know are going to be in those positions are going to perform. And to see them up against each other as well will be will be interesting to see the era of 
The Late Show with Stephen Colbert and The Late Late Show with dot dot dot. And, and uh, I think, yeah, and of course, it's not just that as well. I mean, I think also UK chat shows as well, which is something we're going to explore just as much as the talk shows. Uh, I think, I think uh, one of the main reasons I've settled on approaching talk shows as a priority over British chat shows by comparison is potentially because there's, there's a lot, there's a, a far more extensive variation of this culture, I suppose, of, of talk show out there. Whereas over here, it's, in recent years, certainly, it's been limited to inconsequential slots. And although, of course, don't get me wrong, I mean, of course, we've got some great entertainment still going out, going on occasionally, but ultimately it's, it's inconsistent. Whereas in America, it's been an ongoing legacy, essentially. It's been building and building and building. Whereas over here, of course, since the days of Parkinson, Russell Harty, Wogan, we haven't really had anything hugely solid i think there's certainly been some peaks and troughs over here whereas over in america it's always been a big battle essentially with with a few a few kings and queens on top on top of the heap but ultimately there's always just an ongoing eruption which i i I always find quite interesting and gary you are of course the host of the sitcom club podcast which is now in its somewhere between 30 and 40 episodes now, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, indeed. It comes out every Wednesday. It's available at sitcomclub.com. And we talk British sitcoms. I think we've probably got a slight leaning towards classic rather than contemporary, but not exclusively. But, yeah, we talk about sitcoms. We go into detail about perhaps it'll be one specific episode and we'll look at the text or we might look at a sort of broad spectrum, we might look at one particular writer's work or a particular genre whatever it may be. So yeah you can subscribe to that at sitcomclub.com, it's available on iTunes and of course it is part of the Podnose network of which I think you are familiar. Indeed, uh, both this podcast, the talk show, talk show and sitcom club both part of the podnose network which i as far as i can gather is uh, slowly but surely evolving <laughs> into a network as opposed to just two podcasts but it will slowly but surely get there we've i know that there are a number of shows lined up uh, i was speaking to someone only last night who is uh, is putting together uh, a number of things for the network so it's yes it's all very ex- exciting times not just for talk shows but for podcasting but for our, our podcasting as well i think there's just, it's about time that more people got involved. And of course, if any of you out there want to get involved in any capacity with Podnose Network, then write to admin at podnose.com. And that's admin, A-D-M-I-N, at P-O-D-N-O-S-E dot com. Write to admin at podnose.com if you want to get involved in any capacity whatsoever. If you want to help out, if you want to do a show, if you want to be a guest on a show, write to admin at podnose.com. Gary Roger, thank you very much for being my first guest on the Talk Show Talk Show podcast, and uh, I hope you come back to do another show soon. Thank you very much for inviting me, and I look forward to it. And thank you, the listener, to listening to the first episode of the Talk Show Talk Show podcast with your host, George Grimwood, and our guest this week, Gary Roger. If you've enjoyed this episode and wish to hear more, please subscribe to the show at the iTunes Store, 
And if you'd like to get involved with the show in any capacity, albeit to come on and talk about your experience as an audience member of a talk show, a guest of a talk show, or indeed the host of a talk show, please get in touch via admin at podnose.com. That's A-D-M-I-N at podnose, P-O-D-N-O-S-E dot com. I am your host, George Grimwood. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Talk Show Talk Show podcast is part of the Podnose Network. Music by Ian Cummins, sound engineering by Ocho, and produced and edited by George Grimwood. Music